Palm Sunday, the Holy Week, Passion Week. We're, we're condensing probably the most action-packed, meaningful week in, in all of the Bible. It's, it's hard to find seven days where more things happen than what happens in the Holy Week, especially just triumphal entry on Sunday to the, cruci- to the trial on Thursday night, the crucifixion on Friday. Find me five busier days. It's going to be hard to do. And so we have, well, now we have about 40 minutes. So we're going to pack as much as we can into these 40 minutes. I want you to know we're leaving out a lot of things. We're going to leave out Jesus' parables in Matthew, and they're good. We're leaving out Jesus teaching the crowds in Mark, and we're leaving out a lot more. So let me offer an encouragement to you, something to help you this week as we ramp up our own spiritual rhythms, our own dependence on God as we move into the week right before Resurrection Sunday. Here's a suggestion. On Monday through Thursday of this week, let me encourage you. It's not going to be a test on Sunday. It's okay. But let me encourage you to read one gospel account each day. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Just read from the triumphal entry through the crucifixion. Just a few chapters. won't take long. As we do that, that'll help us prepare our hearts, uh, and that will set my mind at ease that there's so much we can't talk about today. I'll do that, if you guys will do that too. But let's take a look at the last week of Jesus' life. I've called this Following Jesus on the Calvary Road because uh, we want to look at how Jesus makes his journey to his own death on Calvary and what lessons there are for us in the same way. First of all, Jesus shows us the way. Okay, Now, <clears throat> we hear this all the time uh, from people who uh, you know, secular people, people who don't believe, non-Christians, whatever you want to call them, depending on what the survey says, uh, people who don't hold to the same views of Jesus that we hold, right? Pretty hard to find anybody who would say, well, yeah, Jesus is a terrible example, don't do what he did. There are a lot of people who don't believe that Jesus is the Son of God. They don't believe that he rose from the dead. They don't believe that, uh, you know, he's the king of heaven and the king of the universe. But they'll still say, yeah, he's a good example. He did some good things. Maybe we should do, try to do some of the things that he did, okay? But for us, it's different. We know that he is the son of God, the son of man. We know that he lived this sinless life. We know that he died uh, a suffering, humbling death, but that three days later, he gloriously rose again. We know that he paid the penalty for our sins. We know that because of him, we have a right standing with God the Father in heaven. We know that because of him, we too will live. We will be joint heirs with him. We will reign with him. But still, the way he lived showed us some good ways for us to live. That's where we're going to start today. As they're getting ready, this is uh, actually from the Last Supper, the Lord's Supper, when they're gathered together on Thursday night, Thursday evening, right before crucifixion, right before Jesus is arrested and taken to trial. Simon Peter says to him, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus answered, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow me afterward. What does Jesus mean by that? How can we follow him? Well, in the last week of Jesus' ministry before his death, he shows us how to walk the Calvary road, and he gives us an example to follow. We're going to look at three ways he does this. First thing is in his single-minded acceptance of the journey ahead. Back up a little bit to Luke chapter 9. This is when Jesus is ministering, going from town to town in Galilee. He's teaching about the kingdom uh, he's healing the sick. He's casting out demons everywhere he goes. He's bringing hope to small towns and villages that have not seen hope like this ever. But there's a small verse in there that Luke writes, and he says, when the days drew near for him to be taken up. In other words, when the hour was at hand for Jesus to give his life for our sins, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. It was at this point in the Gospel of Luke over the next few chapters, Jesus still does things. He still goes from town to town. He still ministers, still heals the sick, still casts out demons, still preaches the good news of the kingdom. But as he's doing it, he's on a journey. He leaves the region of Galilee. He heads to uh, Judea. It says just across the Jordan from Jerusalem. But he's on his way. He's set his face. He's made the decision that this is the time. He's resolved. Single-minded. He's focused. This is a bit later, as they're actually on the journey. Anytime you see going up to Jerusalem, 
just keep in mind that doesn't always mean north. A lot of times we say, like, go, let's go up north, let's go down south. That's how we say things in English. But um, in, in these days in Israel, it doesn't matter you're north, south, east, or west, you're always going up to Jerusalem because it's on top of a mountain. So it doesn't matter where they were going from, coming from, they're always going up to Jerusalem. So here they are, they're beginning this journey at Passover season, as many pilgrims did. Jesus and the disciples are among them. They're singing the songs, the songs of ascent, uh, Psalm 120 to Psalm 134, as is traditional, as they're making this journey with lots of other pilgrims. And they were on the road, Mark writes, going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed. And those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. There's no surprise here. Jesus is not taken out, just so you know, Jesus was not, this is about the third time he predicts his death and his resurrection. He was not taken off guard, not surprised, not trapped, not lured into it, not baited into it. He sets his face to go to Jerusalem, and as he's on the journey, Jesus, look, look where he is. He's out ahead of him. Purposeful, intentionally, single-minded. He knows what has to be done, and he's going to do it. And they were amazed. <laughs> Those who followed, they were afraid. Like, we haven't quite seen Jesus like this. He's a little bit more intense than usual. But he tells them, look, this is what's going to happen. We're going to go up there, and I'm going to be arrested, and they're going to sentence me to death. They're going to mock me. They're going to spit on me, beat me, and kill me. But after three days, I'll rise. Single-minded, he's ready for this. He accepts it. He knew what was awaiting him. He was resolved to submit to the will of God the Father, to do what only he could do. How could he do it? How could he do this? What, it, what was it about him that helped him do this? First of all, he had zero doubt about the goodness of God, none at all. There was not a, not a crack for any sort of doubt, misgivings, questions about the goodness of God. Complete, 100% trust. He was ready to endure what was ahead of him, we read in Hebrews, for the joy that was set before him. What are these joys that were set before him? Well, being seated at the right hand of the Father and then receiving the praise of multitudes, as we'll read a little bit later on. How could Jesus have this single-mindedness? He was he, zero doubt about the goodness of God, but also the joy that awaited him. If we're going to learn the lesson, if we're going to walk the same Calvary road as Jesus, if we're going to Follow his example. How do we do this when we're called to walk a hard road? We trust in his sovereignty, in his goodness, in his mercy towards us. He's, he's high above us. It's the creator of heaven and earth. Uh... Not only did he create everything, but we read in the first chapter of Hebrews that he continually holds all things together by the word of his, of his, by the power of his word. Which means that if, if, if our creator God, not only did he create, but he sustains and he holds it together. And if he ever stopped doing that, everything would fall apart. He's always doing this. He's beyond time. He's everywhere at once. He knows everything all at once. There's, I mean, his power is so great that you, you to even compare him to anything else would just it would be a wasted exercise. But at the same time, he's near. He calls us his children. He chooses to make his dwelling place with us. We trust in his sovereignty. We trust in his goodness. We know that there is not one square inch of all of this creation that's outside of his control. What I'm about to say, I say carefully. If we could see things as God sees them. I'm going to say this carefully. I'm not going to say it flippantly. I'm going to say it um, with clear intentions because there are a lot of us here today who are dealing with very heavy hearts. A lot of us in our community, we have uh, family members who receive terrible news. 
We have kids with health problems. We have doubts about our finances. We have family members who are, they've cut us off, alienated. We have real problems and real issues. So what I say, I say with all seriousness, if we could see things the way God sees them, if we were able to see with his all-knowingness, if we were able to see it outside of time the way he sees it, if we were able to see it through his sovereign eyes, then everything that God has done towards us is something we would have chosen for ourselves. Every bad test result from the doctor's office, every phone call you got in the middle of the night that you didn't want to get, every disappointment, every hurt, if we could see it the way God sees it, then everything that he has done towards us is something we would have chosen for ourselves. That's how we follow this example of Jesus when we're called to walk a hard road. We have to believe, we have to know that God is not only is he sovereign in control of every square inch of the universe, creator of heaven and earth, nothing is beyond his power. Not only that, but he's good. He's with us. He's kind to us. Can you imagine a God that was good but not powerful? And can you imagine a God that was powerful but not good? But he's both. And he's equally both. If we could see things like God sees them, if we could see things like that, then everything that he's done, we would have chosen that for ourselves. That it helps us accept the journey ahead and be ready to walk. Second thing, example that Jesus shows us how to walk the Calvary Road, how he interacted with people. Two categories of people, as we read throughout the different gospel accounts, primarily from Matthew, Mark, and Luke. You'll see the references up here uh, as Jesus interacts with different people along the road. We know that God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. That's something that a lot of us know in our minds, and maybe we're thinking, oh, I know that's somewhere in Scripture, but where is it? I can't remember. It's because it's a lot of places, not just in one. It starts out in Proverbs, a couple different New Testament writers quote it, and then it's, it shows up in various forms throughout, all over Psalms and Proverbs. But this idea that God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble, so you can probably guess what the two categories are. There's people that Jesus made time for, okay? Those are people who had nothing to offer a Savior, and then, on the other side, there's people that Jesus just didn't have any time for. And those are the people who thought they didn't need a Savior. Let's take a look at these two groups. We'll start with those people, those humble souls, who they had nothing to offer a Savior. All right? Even on his way, before, before Palm Sunday, before the triumphal entry into Jerusalem, when he's on his way, he's leaving Jericho, he's, he's really close Sunday is, is nigh, this, this triumphal entry into Jerusalem. But he shows pity on some blind beggars. First of all, I didn't even mention this. Talk, he, he sees Zacchaeus, right? Tax collector, short guy, climbs up the tree. He just wants to see Jesus. I don't know if he knows what he's going to do when he sees Jesus. I don't know if he has a plan beyond just, I want to go up the tree and see him. But that's his starting point. I just want to climb. I just want to see. I just want to see. Jesus sees him. Hey. Knows him by name. Zacchaeus, come on down. Let's go ahead let's talk. I didn't even put that one on here. After that, Jesus goes and he shows pity on blind beggars on the way to Jerusalem. Bartimaeus is one of the beggars. We see his name in one of these gospel accounts. He's walking down the road. Jesus is just walking down the road. And they cry out, Son of David, have mercy on us. The disciples, the other people in the crowd are like, get these, get these guys quiet. Jesus has things to do. They keep crying out, Son of David, have mercy on us. So Jesus goes over, well, what do you want me to do for you? How do you want me to have mercy? I love their simplicity. I love it that they're not like, could you, get, could you help me understand the eternal truth of whatever? Or could you, could you help me establish in my heart your precepts so that I might walk in your ways? Or could you, Jesus, we are blind. We would like to see. Very simple. Very clear ask. So he shows pity. All right, yeah, your faith made you well. Open your eyes. And they do, and they can see, and they rejoice. Sometimes we need to keep it simple when we ask Jesus for things. When Jesus is in Jerusalem, this is during the Holy Week itself, Jesus welcomes Greeks who want to see him. Okay? Reading in John's account here in John chapter 12, the Greeks 
who have also made the pilgrimage. So these are not full-blooded Jews. They are Greeks, maybe some mixed uh, ethnicity, possibly. They're God-fearers, as we read about maybe uh, Cornelius in Acts chapter 10. We read about different God-fearers who didn't necessarily belong to the Jewish ethnicity. They couldn't tell you what tribe they were from. Uh, They were on their pilgrimage for Passover as well. So they go to Philip. Uh, There's a good reason they went to Philip. Philip is a Greek name. So of all of Jesus' disciples, Philip probably had some Greek connection somewhere in his family. So they go to Philip. I love the way they do this. I just love to see the way the disciples work. So these Greeks, they go to Philip. They say, Philip, is there any way we can see Jesus? I I guess Philip kind of knows where he fits. So he's like, hold on. So Philip goes to Andrew. Andrew, is there any way they can see Jesus? So Andrew's like, hold on. So he goes to Jesus and he gets Jesus. Hey, Jesus, there's some Greeks that want to see you. So Jesus goes and he sees him and he tells him. Very simple message. Whoever loves his life will lose it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. And for these Greeks, who couldn't even go into part of the temple. There was part of the temple that was roped off. They, you, had, you had to you know, be of a certain, you had, you had to be full Jew. You had to be male to get into part of it. But they were excluded from a lot of the temple. Look at those words. If anyone serves me. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. So Jesus sees these Greeks and gives them hope. And Jesus is familiar. He praises the widow's offering. You're familiar with the story, I'm sure, in both these gospel accounts, Mark and Luke. The writers mention, uh, this is on... um, So Jesus rides in, and we're going to talk about we're going to talk about cleansing the temple a little bit. Jesus rides in on Sunday. Uh, he goes, has a look at the temple, sees what's going on. It's already getting dark. He thinks, I'm going to deal with this tomorrow. So he goes back, comes back on Monday, cleanses the temple. It's dark again, heads back. This is on Tuesday. So on Tuesday, there they are at the temple, and there's a place where everybody's putting in their offering, and Jesus points out all these wealthy people who are putting in all their money. And he says, they're just they're giving out of their abundance. They're 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 giving some, but they have a lot. But look at this woman. She's giving out of her poverty. She's giving everything that she has. It hurt for her to give that much. And Jesus points out what she's done. Not by accident. In both gospel accounts, immediately after this. So Jesus looks at the rich people just giving. Yeah, they're giving out of their abundance. Okay. But look at this poor woman. She's giving out of her poverty. Right after that, in both accounts, not by accident, people came up to Jesus and they're like, Jesus, have you seen our temple? Isn't it beautiful? Look at this thing. Isn't it impressive? Jesus tells them that these stones are going to be thrown down and the temple will be destroyed. And it's this widow's offering. It's sandwiched in between the rich people giving out of their abundance and the, the beauty of the outside of the temple. And this widow, it's not, it's not that the temple's beautiful. That's not the problem. It's that the temple's only beautiful on the outside. On the inside, it's ugly. What's happening inside is horrible. But it's beautiful. I mean, hey, it looks nice. It's got curb appeal. looks nice out here. But it's this widow's offering sandwich right in between. That's the offering to God that's made from a pure heart. So we saw people that Jesus made time for, those with nothing to offer a Savior. Let's take a look at the people that Jesus just didn't have any time for. These are people who thought they didn't need a savior. Cleansing of the temple. Well-known story. Wade touched on it, uh, what, two weeks ago. So Jesus, and I'm I'm, going to pick the one from Matthew here. Uh, I I like the way Matthew tells the story. So Jesus rides in. uh, We'll get to the actual triumphal entry in a bit, but he rides in on the colt into the city, looks around at the temple, sees what's going on, not happy about it, but he goes back because it's getting late. He goes back to Bethany where he's staying, just outside of town, a couple miles. Next day he comes back. Everybody knows this. He enters the temple, dro- driving out everybody who's selling and buying in the temple. He overturns the tables of the money changers and the seats of those 
who sold pigeons, and he says to them, it's written, my house shall be called a house of prayer. The passage he's quoting in Isaiah continues to say, my house will be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you made it into a den of robbers. What's the problem with these? I don't know. What's the problem? What's the problem with, I mean, people need to, People, you know, they've they got to make an offering and they're coming a long way, so what's wrong with us setting up something where they can just buy the pigeons and then they can go in and they can offer the pigeons? What's wrong with that? What's wrong with these? You ever thought about money changers? Here's the deal. Pilgrims coming from everywhere, you had to pay the temple tax. You had to pay like an offering to go into the temple. You had to, basically a price of admission. And you had to pay it in the local currency. Okay? I've lived overseas for 10 years. And I know that, like, there's a few rules that you got to stick to when you live overseas. Um, even above not drinking the water, number one is never, ever, ever change money at the airport. They kill you on it. Just never. Don't do it. Just so we would always, we would always just keep, like, I had this little thing. It's, it's kind of like my security pouch. It had... I just, you know, even our first, like, month back here, I just have to go find it every night, make sure it was still there because I got so used to it. But it's got our passports, and it has, like, I don't know, $30 worth of, like, five different currencies. So I'm like, I'm not going to get suckered into changing money at the airport. I'm going to have enough to get into town every time. I'm not going to let them rip me off. But that's what these guys were doing. That's what these money changers were doing. They were taking advantage of people who weren't from there. And they made this temple that we were supposed to worship God into a marketplace where people were being taken advantage of, Let's be honest, the pigeons were probably not being sold at fair market value. That's why Jesus says to him, we've turned this into a den of robbers. We know this. He chases them out, flips the tables, everybody runs. But look what Matthew says after this. This made the Pharisees and the chief priests so mad. Look what happens right after he cleanses the temple. The money changers are gone, but look who stays. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple. And he healed them. Everything it was supposed to be, it's about to be again. The blind and the lame, they come to him in the temple and he heals them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and get this, children were crying out in the temple. This is the day after, and the little kids are echoing what they heard yesterday. Hosanna to the son of David. They were indignant. Can you imagine how mad those chief priests were? And they said, do you hear what they're saying? And Jesus said to him, yeah, what's wrong with you? Have you haven't you ever read? Out of the mouths of infants and nursing babes, you've prepared praise. Man, that must have made the chief priest mad. Everybody's gone. Jesus, is, so who's in the temple? Just blind and lame and a bunch of kids. But everybody's going away having met Jesus. Man, that made him mad. So these are people who thought they didn't need a savior. Reading Mark and Luke's account. It's added on there that the chief priests and the scribes, they were seeking a way to destroy him, but they feared Jesus because the crowds were hanging on his every word. Next group of people who thought, oh yeah, these, these are people, I just mentioned this, these are people who use God's kingdom for their personal benefit. They sought to keep others out and they try to destroy anything or anyone who becomes an obstacle. If you think these people aren't around today, I've got news for you. Second group of people who thought they didn't need a savior were those people who looked good on the outside. Two examples Jesus gives. Recorded in three, each of them are recorded in three different gospels. Let's take a look first at the story of the fig tree. All right. So Sunday he comes in on the entry. He's getting looks around the temple. Not happy. He goes out to Bethany to spend the night because it's already dark. Monday morning, he's on his way. He's focused. He knows the first thing he's going to do when he gets there, but he's hungry. So he stops Monday morning on the side of the road because he sees this fig tree. Wow, that fig tree has a lot of leaves on it. It should be full of fruit. It's fig season. If it's got leaves, it should have fruit. But this tree, it has no fruit. It was a beautiful tree, but it had no fruit. So Jesus curses it, says it will never bear fruit. He heads to the temple. He chases out the money changers. He heals the blind and the lime like we just read. And the little kids come up and they repeat what they heard yesterday. It's already evening. He's headed back. Time to go back to Bethany. That's a full day chasing people out of the temple. So he goes back. It's already dark. They don't really notice the fig tree. Maybe they go a different way. Maybe it's already dark. He doesn't mention the fig tree yet. 
Tuesday morning, he's headed back into the city, and that fig tree, it's withered up. This fig tree was a picture of what was happening at the temple. Beautiful on the outside. They even came to Jesus. Jesus, have you seen this place? Look at this. The fruitful worship of God that should be taking place on the inside was nowhere to be seen. There were plenty of fine-looking leaves in the temple, but no fruit. Then he tells the story, the parable of the wicked tenants. I'll read this here. This is taken from, yeah, Mark's account. This is the same day. After he sees, so after, he sees, after they see the fig trees withered, right? This is the same day. This is Tuesday. Disciples all see it, and they all say, man, Jesus cursed that thing yesterday. It looks so healthy. Today, it's dead. And then he tells them this parable. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it. I mean, it was, it was ready for operation. Had everything it needed to produce wine. And he leased it to the tenants, and he went to another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him, this servant, and they beat him. And they sent him away empty-handed. And again, he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others. Some, some servants they beat, and some they killed. And he had still one other a beloved son. And finally, he sent the son to them, saying, they'll respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? Jesus asked. He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read the scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it's marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, the chief priests were, but they feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. Yeah, it's about you guys. Can you imagine being those Greeks who went to find Jesus, and they're hearing him say, it'll be taken and given to others. Can you imagine that spark of hope? So they left him and they went away. These were people who played the part on the outside, but they had forgotten their first love. Just a couple chapters later, Jesus calls them whitewashed tombs, beautiful on the outside, shiny and bright. But the inside, they're just full of dead men's bones. Third group of people who thought they didn't need a Savior were people who tried to outsmart or trap Jesus. We read about these in Mark chapters 11 and 12. First group were those who questioned Jesus' authority. Man, they thought they were clever. I'm just trying to imagine their huddle. Hey, okay, is there a way we could trick him? No, don't ask that. That's stupid. Maybe we ask this. Okay, ask this one. That's a good one. Let's ask that one. So they go and they say, tell us, where's your authority come from, Jesus? Hoping he'll make some claim or trap himself with his words. So Jesus responds. Oh, yeah, three. We'll get there. Jesus responds with a question that they couldn't answer. He said, yeah, sure, I'll, I'll answer your question. As soon as you tell me what you think about John's baptism, was it from God or was it from man? And the Bible says that they were, they were fearful because if they said it was from God, then Jesus is going to say, then why didn't you listen to him? And if they say it's from man, John still had so many people who followed and respected him that it's, it's going to cause a revolt. So Jesus said, yeah, okay, well, if you can't answer mine, then I'm not going to answer yours. There were people who tried to box him in politically. Jesus... Is it lawful for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Tomorrow's April 15th, by the way. (laughs) Hits home. Um, So Jesus says, show me a coin. They're trying to box him in politically. Is this guy going to be a religious figure, a political figure? What's he going to do? Let's force his hand. Let's make him say something. He says, you guys know this. Let me see a coin. He says, whose face is on it? Caesar's. Then give to Caesar what's Caesar's. But he doesn't stop there. He says, give to God what's God's. And then there are people who try to confuse the issue theologically. Okay? I'll give you a little background here. This, so we talk a lot about the Pharisees. We don't talk a lot about the Sadducees. They were another group of religious leaders who uh, they didn't, by and large, believe in the resurrection. Uh, they didn't really believe in a whole... It's weird. They didn't really believe in a whole lot of supernatural things. They didn't really think much about angels, but they definitely knew there was no resurrection of the dead. So what do they ask Jesus a question about? The resurrection of the dead. 
they go and they say, suppose there's a woman uh, whose husband dies, and then, like the law says, the younger brother should take her in and take care of her uh, so that she's not left as a destitute widow. Well, that second brother, he dies. So the third brother, well, okay, he'll take her in, and he'll take care of her. Well, he dies, fourth dies, fifth dies, sixth dies. Finally, seven brothers, they've all taken her in, and the seventh brother dies. At the resurrection, the Sadducees say, so facetious. They say, whose wife will she be? Just trying to trap him. They don't really want to know the answer. That's what Jesus says to him. Is this not the reason that you're wrong? You know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. And he tells him, you Sadducees, have you not read what it says? And he quotes the scripture that answers the question. Then he ends with, you're quite wrong. No time. He had no time for people who thought that they didn't need a Savior. Well, how can we follow Jesus' example in our interactions with people in a similar way? First of all, let's don't be the wrong kind of person. Let's be people who realize that we need a Savior and that we have nothing to offer Him. Don't be the wrong kind of person, first of all. Second, let's look for humble people also in need of a Savior. Same week, a little bit later, Jesus is teaching his followers, and he tells them in Matthew 25, a very familiar story, that at the last day, at the great judgment, there will be some separated, these sheep and these goats. And to one side he will say, enter in to the blessed rest to come. Because I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was sick, and you visited me. I, I, I was in prison, and uh, naked, and you clothed me in prison, and you came to see me. And they're going to say, when do we ever do those things? Inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these, you did it to me. And to the other side, he's going to say, when I was naked, you didn't clothe me. When I was in prison, you didn't come and visit me. When I was thirsty, you didn't give me anything to drink. When I was hungry, you didn't give me anything to eat. Jesus, when, when, do we, when, do we, when were you ever hungry and thirsty? Whatever you did to the least of these, that's what you did to me. Let's show grace to the humble. Let's take some time out of our schedules. And when there are women and kids who've left abusive situations, let's go play with the kids so that the moms can have a Bible study. There's families who have seen and experienced things that we can only read about and no way could we imagine, and they're here in Southern California and we have a chance to go draw with some of their kids. Not clean their houses, just draw with their kids. Let's go do it. We're working on ways in coming weeks on how we can help people who don't have homes. We can help them do their laundry. We can give them a good meal. Not, not fix all their problems, just help a little bit. Let's do that. Let's answer that call. Third, let's avoid distracting quarrels. Yes, we must think rightly about God, but displaying our rightness to the world isn't the point at all. He has not called us to be Facebook warriors. There's some theological debates that it's okay to sit out. Let's don't get distracted. The point of the gospel is not that we might prove ourselves right. It's that we might make Jesus beautiful. Yeah? That's how we follow his example. Finally, this is how Jesus shows us the way it's and how he served and loved his disciples. You guys know this. Jesus washes his disciples' feet. He tells them they should do this for one another. You got to remember, in that culture, man, we're talking dusty roads. We're talking sandals. We're talking animal stuff they're leaving behind and they're walking through it and it's everywhere. So washing the feet was not a pleasant task. This was not, um, this was not, you know, as is common in many of our households, oh, here's, just take, slip your shoes off here and then you can put on some slippers here. It's not that. It's way worse than that. Jesus gives them a new command. First he washes their feet as they sit down to eat the meal. And he gives them a new commandment. He says that you I just love one another. Just as I've loved you, you're also to love one another. By this, all people will know that you're my disciples if you have love 
for one another. Not if it's, hey, if it's convenient, do you guys mind loving one another? Not even, uh, hey, as, as, much as, you know, as much as you can, can you love one another? No, just like I've loved you. Even when I knew it wasn't going to be reciprocated. I loved you. That's how we're supposed to love each other. It's this patient, hard work of selfless, serving love. Okay, Jesus, the road's getting a little harder. That's a little more than I thought was going to be required as I follow you down this road. Turns out it's also a dangerous path. Three different gospel accounts, Jesus is telling his followers the same thing, things to look out for. He tells them, first of all, watch out for false messiahs. They'll claim that the end is here. They'll show up out in the desert and say, the end is here. Oh, the end is here. Don't go out to them. Can I just encourage you? Be wise in what you read. Be wise in websites you visit. I would encourage you against getting so wrapped up in trying to predict the return of our Lord that you forget what it means to walk this obedient Calvary road. The people who were supposed to know the best about the first time he came totally whiffed. And I suspect it'll be the same this time around too. Turbulent world, he told them. There's going to be wars. There's going to be famines. There's going to be natural disasters. There's going to be earthquakes. It's going to be common to everybody. Not just those who walk the Calvary Road, but it's going to happen everywhere. There are going to be enemies of the cross. Persecution and suffering. Here I am, talking about persecution and suffering again. I'm like a band that only knows how to play one song. But there, it even says, family members will turn you over to authorities thinking they're doing a service to God. We will face opposition. Our brothers and sisters around the world are facing it even more intensely than we are. And there will be false teachers. This is different from the false messiahs who say the end has come. There will be false teachers who do their best to lead people astray. Who make the Calvary Road a little bit easier to walk. You don't have to do all that. Just, just this. That'd be good. Paul tells Timothy to watch out for these people. There will will come a time when people will not endure sound doctrine, but they will look for teachers who tell them what their itching ears want to hear. Be on guard. This path is a dangerous one. What hope do we have? We have to follow the example of a Messiah who chose the hard, humiliating, most difficult way. It's dangerous. What hope do we have? How can we do this? Oh, it's because we don't walk it alone. It's where we're going to center down today. John chapter 14. Jesus tells them, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And I'll ask the Father, and he'll give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. This is our scripture reading from today. Jesus tells his his disciples at the Last Supper, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him, make myself known to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you'll manifest yourself, make yourself known to us and not to the world? And Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, He'll keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever doesn't love me doesn't keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father who sent me. These things I've spoken to you while I'm still with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I've said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. My peace I give to you, not like the world gives. Let not your hearts be troubled. Neither let him be afraid. We don't walk alone. It's from John 14 all over the 
first book, the book of First John, Jesus says, If you love me, obey my commandments. The one who obeys my commandments is the one who loves me. The one who loves me will be loved by my Father and by me. We see it all over First John. If you love me, you'll obey my commandments. The one who obeys my commandments is the one who loves me. The one who, it's in there. It's, however you want to phrase it, it's in there a lot. This marriage of obeying commandments as the fruit of our love relationship with Jesus. So is Jesus saying that we can earn God's love and by, his, by extension his forgiveness and our salvation by keeping his commandments? Is this something that's on us, something we can do? There's two big misunderstandings of salvation in the Christian life. Matthew, Jesus in Matthew chapter 7, verse 13 and 14, Sermon on the Mount, he talks about the narrow and the wide gate. This is a very familiar passage. He talks about the way of destruction. He says this gate is wide and the way is easy. But the way of life, the gate is narrow and the way is hard. You're all picturing, you're all remembering what Jesus said, right? Sometimes we kind of remember what he said, but sometimes we get it backwards, especially in the way we live it out. I got Lauren to help me out with this. When I try to draw, it goes poorly. But I have an 11-year-old, and she's pretty good. So these are the two ways that we get it wrong, okay? Sometimes we think that this is what walking the Calvary Road is like. If entering the gate, whatever you want to call it, being born again, receiving Christ, salvation, new birth, regeneration, whatever you want to say, if that's what entering the gate is, and then you walk along the path, means your life afterwards, we get two things wrong. A lot of times we think it's like this that there's a narrow path that leads to a narrow gate, and then once we walk through it, oh, it widens up. We're in. Let's relax. Kind of do whatever we want. It's okay. It's a wide road, plenty of room. No big deal. But what do we read in quiet time this week? Sin abounds, and when sin abounds, grace abounds even more. So should we keep on sinning so that there'll be even more grace? Wouldn't that be a good thing? Paul says, no, no way. Right? This is not how it works. It's not like there's a narrow gate that we walk through, and then once we're through, we're good. Anything goes. There's grace, right? It's a bad understanding of how it operates. Likewise, equally poisonous, is this, I like this strong, is the idea that we have to walk this winding mountain road our whole life all by ourselves, with no room for error, in the hopes that at the very end we'll be able to find a very small door that we can somehow squeeze through to eternal life. That's not it either. Those are both really wrong. You ever go bowling? Am I asking the right crowd? Do you ever go bowling? <laughs> so sometimes the best part about going bowling is when there's a little kid's birthday at the bowling alley. Because you don't know what they always have at the little kids', bowl, little kids birthdays, right? is they got those bumpers, right? No gutter balls, man. They got the little bumpers down there, and you know when you roll that ball, you're knocking something down. There's bumpers on either side to keep it straight. And that's what Jesus does for us. It's a narrow gate that not many people are going to find, and the path afterward is still hard, but he didn't leave us alone to find it. In fact, he gave us two bumpers. The helper, the promised Holy Spirit, who will help us understand the truth about who Jesus is. And then he gave us his word. These are the bumpers that keep us on that path. Without them, what hope would we have? Let's look at the helper, the Holy Spirit. He will be with us forever. He will dwell with us. He will dwell in us. He is part of the triune God sent by the Father, and he will teach us all things. He will help us remember what Jesus taught. Next chapter in John says he'll convict the world, including ourselves, of sin. So we have this helper, the Holy Spirit. The original language, the helper, really means the one who comes alongside. Hey, kind of like a bumper. And then we abide in Christ and his word. This is familiar. We don't spend a lot of time here. Jesus tells them, abide in me and I in you. As the branch can't bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. Everybody knows this verse. I'm the vine, you're the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone doesn't abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch and he withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. Let's pause right there. Jesus says, remain in me, abide in me, and I'll abide in you and you'll bear much fruit. That sounds great. 
I don't know what that means, but that sounds great. Sounds like something I would want. Then he says, if anyone doesn't abide in me, it's like that, that fruitless branch. It's thrown away, and it withers. The branches are gathered, they're thrown in the fire, and they're burned. These guys remember the fig tree when he's telling them this, just a few days before. Okay, that sounds like something I don't want. I don't know how to avoid it, but I know I don't want it. I want the first thing, but I don't want the second. And in verse 7, he clears up how to do it. It turns from philosophical to practical. If you abide in me, here it is. And my words abide in you. Ask whatever you wish, and it'll be done for you. Verse 10, he says, if you keep my commandments, you'll abide in my love, just as I've kept my Father's commandments, and abide in his love. We abide in Christ when his words abide in us. We abide in his love by keeping his commandments. Do we earn his love that way? No. Do we stay in his love that way? Yes. When his words abide in us. We genuinely want to love Christ, but how can we love him if we don't know about him? Both our hearts and our minds must belong to him. We have to do the hard work of understanding his word. You've heard the term... A lot of marriage uh, specialists say, hey, you should be a PhD in your spouse, right? It'll help your marriage. You, you need to be the expert on your spouse. Learn everything about them. What are they like? What are they not like? What's their favorite breakfast? Where's their favorite place to go? What's their favorite TV show? How do you know when they're feeling anxious? You need to be a PhD in your spouse. How much more should we be that way to Jesus? Why do we limit ourselves in what we can try to learn about him? Let's abide in him. Let's let his words abide in us. Spirit and the word, these work together. The Holy Spirit leads us to all truth, helps us know Jesus, and reminds us of everything Jesus taught us. The Spirit helps us understand what the Bible says, just like turning on a light in a dark room. We can't understand what God has to say without the help of the Spirit. On the other side, we can't understand the power of the Holy Spirit and the innumerable ways he's at work in our lives without the truth of Scripture. It's the Spirit and the word working together to keep us securely on this narrow path, on this Calvary road. That's why Jesus, when he tells the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman, earlier in John, there will come a time when people will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. The Spirit and the Word working together to keep us on the path. I want to end with this. We wrap up today. It's Palm Sunday. He's going to talk about the entry, right? Yeah. So on the next day, John's gospel says, which is Sunday, right before, uh, when Jesus is on his way, he stops in Bethany, he has dinner, I didn't include this in the, tech, I didn't include this in the slide, he has dinner uh, at the home of Simon the leper, Lazarus, whom he raised from the dead, was there, so were Mary and Martha. Big feast. I'm assuming Simon the leper was likely also a leper that Jesus healed, or people wouldn't have gone over to his house if he was still a leper. But they still called him Simon the leper. So they're there at his house, big feast. Well, the next day, John says, who was the crowd? I always wondered, who was the crowd? Was it like the whole city of Jerusalem that came down to see Jesus enter the city? That's not what John tells us. John makes it look like these are people who were journeying with Jesus. The next day, this large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. How many were there? A hundred maybe? I don't know how many there were. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it's written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples didn't understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, this is important, when Jesus was glorified, they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd was celebrating Jesus. They were waving branches, putting their cloaks in the road. It's the same crowd who'd been traveling with him. Just said it. Many of them had been journeying him with him, possibly even from Galilee in Luke 9 when he first sets his face to Jerusalem. They celebrated a feast the night before with Lazarus, Mary, and Martha at the home of Simon the leper in Bethany. They journeyed with them. Their hearts were overjoyed. This, one, of the, one of the hard things about uh, you know, a day like Palm Sunday is you, you've, you know, if you're 50 years old, you've probably heard 50 Palm Sunday messages. So, um, so the crowd gets this bad reputation for being fickle. Oh, they're with Jesus on Sunday and they were crucifying him on Friday. I don't know if that's the picture we get. These are people who traveled with him who journeyed with him. Maybe Some of them for months, maybe. And their hearts were overjoyed. Their hearts were overjoyed when they heard he was coming to Jerusalem. 
We've been journeying with Jesus. We've been walking this same road. We're not unlike those people who are at the feast at Simon the leper's house. We've been walking this Calvary road. Guess what? There is an end to this Calvary road, this life that is full of trouble and tribulation, that is full of uh, pain and sorrow. As Jesus tells them, I'm going away, and you are sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn to joy. And let's get a preview. Same John. This time he's writing the book of Revelation. He says, after this, I looked. Behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And then one of the elders addressed me, meaning John, saying, who are these clothed in white robes and from where have they come? And I said to him, sir, you know. And he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation, all the trials and hardships. They've washed their robes and they've made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and they serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter him, shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst anymore. The sun shall not strike them nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd and he will guide them to springs of living water and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Every pain, every loss, every suffering, every sorrow, every disappointment, everything that we leave behind. Everything that we leave behind when he says, come follow me. Everything that we drop to do that. It's completely worth the joy that is waiting for us when we see Jesus in his kingdom. When he's wiped away every tear, he hasn't left us as orphans. He walks the Calvary road with us. And one day, all of our sorrow will turn to joy. We'll see him as he is. We'll worship him, the lamb on his throne. Let's pray. Our King Jesus, how we long for that day when our faith is made sight. How we long to see you as you're meant to be seen. When the frailty of, of our human hearts and human eyes are changed out for new ones, eternal ones, so that we might see you. This is a hard road. We are so thankful that you're with us. You haven't left us to walk it alone. Would you make us wise? Would you make us enduring? But above all, would you make us hopeful? Would you turn our sorrow into joy? As we go through this week, would you help us to pause, to listen? to read. Would you help us turn our sorrow into joy? Jesus, we ask this in your mighty name. Amen.